Tom Gross is a British journalist and Middle East expert who appears a good deal on Arabic, Israeli, Turkish and Persian opposition TV. Tom, you don't have any official position, but you do know many very influential people. How did that come about? Well, um, first of all, nice to be with you, Andrew. Um, well, I hope I know influential people because I have something interesting to add to their uh, thoughts on matters of foreign policy. And I have built up um, interesting connections over the years in a number of countries. But I might also add that in a way I was lucky because my parents who were both literary figures in London, they knew a lot of prominent people in the worlds of culture, people like Harold Pinter, Antonia Fraser, um, Isaiah Berlin, AJ Eyre. And as I was growing up, we often had, you know, drinks parties at home, and I often chit-chatted to such uh, eminent people. My godmother had one godmother, Sonia Orwell, the widow of George Orwell. So obviously that gave me an extra interest talking about Orwell with my godmother, who, who didn't have children herself. So I had a particularly close relationship with Sonia, my godmother. So I think as an adult, I have felt comfortable when somebody at a senior rank, even somebody who's been in the intelligence services, even a head of an intelligence service in more than one country or former defense ministers in Israel or US senators have approached me. I think I've sort of been unfazed by them because I've sort of felt it normal to be surrounded as a child with people who you know, are very successful people like Harold Pinter. And how did your connections with people like Vaclav Havel and Shimon Peres and Eli Wiesel um, come about? That, was, that wasn't just your parents, was it? No, no. So Havel, I took an early interest in um, communism growing up. Uh, not, not a communist, anti-communism, I should say. I first went as a 13-year-old with my grandmother, who had been a sort of secular Jewish um, woman from Berlin, but also spent time in Prague before Hitler. And she wanted to go back and see Prague and see East Berlin. And she took me when I was 13 and then on another trip when I was 15, through Checkpoint Charlie to East Berlin, through to communist Prague. So I had an early interest in um, how awful dictatorships could be. And then I went back as a student to Czechoslovakia. And because I was going as a student, um, I, I could sort of bring stuff uh, back and forth. So a woman who was a family friend, Diana Phipps Sternberg, who is of Czech origin, she was a friend of Harvel, of the Harvel family. And she wanted me to bring some things to Harvel, who had just been in house arrest as the dissident in Czechoslovakia. So I first met Harvel a year before the Velvet Revolution of 1989 that brought to an end communism in, in Eastern Europe. And uh, I then met Harvard again a year later after he amazingly became president in 1990. And I met him a number of times afterwards. So um, I think he was grateful to the fact I'd been one of the people who had brought him stuff from the West and also brought stuff out from Prague 
to his friends in dissident circles, people like Carol Schwarzenberg, who, who later became Czech foreign minister in London. Uh, with the other people you mentioned, Shimon Peres, Eddie Wiesel, and so on, that comes later when I um, was increasingly interested in the Middle East and, uh, you know, uh, writing about that and analyzing and advising people. I met uh, people over the course of years um, and uh, some impressive people. But I also would like to say I met people who are completely unknown, which I think gave me some insights. I have friends who were born as uh, in Ethiopia, Ethiopian Jews who came as children to Israel. I have working class um, Moroccan Jewish friends. I have Palestinian friends. I have Kurdish friends from Iraq. So I think it's quite important that on the one hand, I know some highly successful, famous people who even won Nobel Prizes, but I also very much value um, knowing and learning from ordinary people too. I think it's the juxtaposition of the two that's given me some insights. You were, um, of course, in New York on 9-11 um, as well. Tell us about the insights that that gave you and uh, your recollections of that uh, terrible so, day. Yes, that was a, a, I'll never forget that day. Um, it's quite strange, really. I had been the correspondent in Jerusalem for the Sunday Telegraph, and the so-called Second Intifada had been raging in Israel. I'd witnessed uh, Islamic terrorist attacks, both from Hamas and also from Fatah, the other main Palestinian faction in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And I actually wanted to take a break because I was just exhausted at that point covering the, uh, from covering the Middle East. I filed my final report uh, before leaving for three months to New York. My final report was on, I think it was September the 9th, uh, 2001. It was the 100th Palestinian suicide bombing. I remember uh, that because I'd written it was the 100th suicide bombing. I flew to New York for a planned three month break on September 10th. I went to stay with some friends in Lower Manhattan, and boy, did I have a rude awakening on my first morning on September 11th, because, of course, that's when Al-Qaeda flew, flew airplanes into the trade towers that was nearby. Now, um, it was, I had actually just told the um, Sunday Telegraph editor that I'm happy to do some filing from New York, and he said, no, 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 we have somebody there. But then it turned out their correspondent had been on a holiday in Cuba, so he was desperate to get hold of me. All the phone lines were down. In the end, managed to make a connection, and I did some reporting. It was horrendous, but because I had already covered a lot of terrorism in the Middle East, I was kind of a little bit more steely about it than other people, and I was less emotional. I was more rational. I had already written about Al-Qaeda, so I knew quite a lot both about Al-Qaeda, about the methods of Islamic terrorists, suicide bombers, and so on. But on a human level, there was panic all around. Some people were doing things like filling up the baths with water and preserving electricity and storing up on food. I actually said the opposite. I said, look, it's terrible, but it's now going to be quite safe because no airplanes are allowed to fly now through American airspace and there's more security than ever. So I was more interested in the from the beginning in the kind of analytical and political ramifications rather than fearing there'd be another attack there and then in New York. Um, 
And of course, 9-11 brings us on um, naturally to 7th of October uh, 2023. What do you think went wrong with Israeli intelligence and, and their systems on that day? We have a uh, uh, have had at least an incredibly high regard, of course, for the Israeli intelligence services. Um, what uh, um, what happened? Well, clearly they took their eye off the ball. Um, I'd say there were there were two answers. The immediate one is that some people were not doing their homework, just like some people in American intelligence were not paying attention right before the 9-11 attacks. So clearly, um, I think it was also probably a failure of imagination on behalf of some of the more senior people in Israeli intelligence, a little bit like 9-11. It was such an audacious attack. Um, involving so many Hamas terrorists, about 3,000, hitting so many targets, killing so many people, taking so many hostages, firing so many rockets, that I presume, and obviously there has yet to be an inquiry to actually conclude anything, but I presume some people at the more senior levels Maybe there were there were intelligence clues there, but they couldn't piece them together. They didn't imagine um, Hamas were capable of carrying out such a widespread attack. That's my presumption. But of course, it's only uh, three and a half months ago, and there's yet to be a an inquiry. So we'll have to wait and see. I'll just say one other thing on that. There's also another failure, which is a deeper one. The very idea that. Um, we could ever have quiet with Hamas, or we could ever you know, rely on a terror group to keep the peace, whether it's Israel or any other country. I think it's a, it's an idiotic idea, which many, many people were foolish enough to believe in. Do you think there's any truth to the idea that the domestic political upheaval in Israel um, at the time had any effect uh, in one way or another with regard to the Hamas attack? Well, yes and no. Um, on one hand, um, there are intelligence reports that Hamas has been planning this for almost a decade and um, in, in detail for more than two years. Um, so it's not immediately linked to the six months of internal unrest over the judicial reform proposals of the Netanyahu government. On the other hand, there were huge demonstrations week after week, lots of IDF senior reservists, including intelligence figures, saying they would refuse to serve the government of Netanyahu because they didn't like its policies. And I'm sure that that weakened the um, deterrence of uh, Israel and gave ideas to Hamas and to their overlords in Iran that Israeli society was weak and ripe for attack. And I think actually since October 7th, they've been surprised at the resilience and the union, the coming together of Israeli society. Um, you mentioned overlords in Iran. Say a few words about the relationship between Iran and uh, and Hamas and whether or not you think that there was um, a, uh, a sense in Tehran that this was going to happen. Well, we know there was a sense because apparently they have been practicing for such attacks, not just by Hamas, but also by Hezbollah, their uh, proxies in southern Lebanon. Um, I don't know if Iran would have had operational detail about the exact nature or timing of the October 7th attacks. From what I understand from intelligence sources in Israel, Hamas um, is very compartmentalized 
Egypt, and only about four or five people would have under, would have had knowledge of the entirety of the October 7th attacks. So, for example, one unit of Hamas would have known they had to take hostages. Another would have known they were going to attack from the air. Another would have known they were attacking Kibbutzim, and so on. Only four or five people would have had intimate knowledge of the entirety of the plan. It's not clear whether the Iranians would also have had detailed knowledge, but certainly they have funded and encouraged, both in practical terms and in ideological terms, Hamas to carry out such genocidal attacks. These, uh, this enormous number of hostages that were taken, um, first of all, could you tell us about how they've been treated um, from what we know of the ones who've been released and uh, and what we think is happening to the rest at the moment? Well, they have been treated inhumanely and sadistically. Um, about 250 hostages were taken, um, including as young as an eighth-month-old baby. That baby just celebrated his, or not celebrated, but he had his first birthday, being called the saddest birthday in the world, only a couple of days ago. That baby's called Clear Bibas, now one year old. And among the hostages who are still there are 85-year-olds, including a man who was a kind of peace, Israeli peace activist, and used to drive very sick Palestinians who uh, did when they didn't have advanced medical treatment in Gaza for cancer or something, used to drive them to hospitals in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And even then, Hamas, they've released his wife, but they haven't released him. So Hamas did release some hostages in return for convicted Palestinian attempted murderers and other criminals. They released some of the children and some of the female hostages. And they also released some of the Thai nationals. And they also released two or three Russians as, and I quote, a gesture to Vladimir Putin, close quote, some, some uh, Russian nationals they were holding. But the other hostages they're holding, including young females, 18 and 19, I fear that they have been sexually abused and possibly raped. And one of the reasons Hamas re uh, broke off the previous uh, truce where they had had said they would release all the female hostages is precisely because they didn't want those hostages relating or being examined by doctors and so on as to what was done to them. The uh, hostages' families, of course, have um, a tremendous political power in uh, Israel at the moment. Have they got too much power? Are they having a... What kind of say are they having over the Israeli government's decision-making, military decision-making? Well, I don't think they're having any say over it. And I, I don't think it's a question of power. Look, it's it, it's heartbreaking for the families of the hostages. Some of their sons are being tortured. A number of hostages have already died in captivity. Even the ones not being tortured are being kept deep, deep underground in very humid conditions without proper oxygen, they will pick up all kinds of physical and psychological ailments that they may never recover from. So it's completely understandable that the hostages' families are demonstrating on a regular basis and they have lots and lots of sympathy. On the other hand, it doesn't seem like the Israeli government is going to um, change its war aims purely on the base of uh, protests by hostages' families. If Hamas were to offer a realistic further pause in the fighting with the release 
of some hostages for Israel to supply more aid or to have a one-week ceasefire, I suspect there will be popular support and the Israeli government would agree to that. But Hamas are not offering that. And some of the media reporting makes it sound like Netanyahu can just agree to some kind of hostage swap. Hamas are not offering it. And there are reports that even Qatar, which is the other country besides Iran, to influence Hamas, Qatar claim that they have no longer got enough influence on the Hamas leadership in Gaza. So even when they have suggested to the Hamas leadership a temporary pause with a partial uh, swap between Palestinian uh, prisoners and hostages, the leadership in Gaza is not interested. How many Palestinian casualties are there now in Gaza, would you uh, say? Because we obviously can't believe the um, reports of the uh, um, health ministry there, which is a propaganda arm of uh, of Hamas. But obviously there have been large numbers. And, and what proportion of them are Hamas fighters, do you think? Andrew, this is one of the most crucial points about the whole war, and it's really not being uh, reported. It's deliberately being avoided by so-called respectable media like the New York Times, Washington Post and BBC. We know that approximately 9,000 Hamas terrorists, fighters, operatives, call them what you will, have been killed, which represents about 25% of Hamas's fighting force of about 35 to 40,000 men. So about 9,000 Hamas uh, people have been killed in the course of fighting. The Hamas health ministry claims that about 25,000 people have been killed in general. If for one moment we believe that, and it's almost certainly a big exaggeration, we then have to also conclude, based on past conflicts, that one to two thousand of those people are Palestinians killed by misfired rockets shot by Hamas or the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. In fact, in one of the past rounds of fighting a few years ago, 25% of fatalities in Gaza were killed by Palestinian rockets, which misfired and, like the rocket that hit the hospital, that Israel was wrongly blamed for by the BBC and New York Times and others, um, that was fired, we now know for sure, by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Israel does not aim at hospitals. So um, what I want to say is if we take the Hamas figure, which is almost certainly exaggeration of 25,000, deduct 9,500 Hamas fighters, deduct, let's say, 1,500 uh, Palestinians killed by other Palestinians, also deduct some people who have died of natural causes, because Hamas seems to be adding on people who have died of old age or other such things, cancer, whatever. The ratio we get to of combatant to civilian deaths is something like 1.5 civilians to one combatant. Now, the United Nations, no friend of Israel, their research says that since 1945, the average uh, death ratio in armed urban combat is nine civilians to one uh, combatant. That's, that's um, conflicts across the world. And in Iraq and Afghanistan, the estimated deaths are about three to five civilians for every uh, Taliban or ISIS or uh, Saddam Hussein fighter. So in other words, 
Israeli uh, care and caution in not killing civilians is greater than practically any other army in modern history. But that is not being um, reflected in the public discourse, even by President Biden, who in one of his unscripted moments wrongly accused Israel of having indiscriminate bombing, which is just nonsense. If Israel had had indiscriminate bombing in such an urban area as Gaza, we would have tens and tens and thousands of deaths. And uh, the IDF rules of engagement, therefore, must be different Um in, in a sense, much more ethically uh, advanced than a lot of uh, urban warfare that we've seen even in recent years. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, what what does what do IDF soldiers do that um, say uh, um, American troops in um, in Iraq or uh, or British troops in Basra don't do? Well, I, I don't think I'm not for one moment suggesting that there's a, a, a la, there's not ethics among American and British troops. Of course, they're always a few. no. Neither am I. I hasten to yeah, add. But you know, yeah. what is the, what are the rules of engagement that mean that 1.5 uh, civilians to uh, to? I, I think there are two there are two big differences. First of all, Israeli intelligence, in spite of their failure to um, predict October 7, Israeli intelligence remains brilliant. So they have very, very good intelligence of exactly who, where there's a fighter, where there's civilians and so on, which is why there was an assassination of a senior Hamas figure in South Beirut, in the Hezbollah suburbs, um, three or four weeks ago. And if you look at the film footage, his exact apartment uh, was taken out. He and three other senior Hamas guys were killed, and not a single other person was even harmed at all. Also in uh, Damascus yesterday, some Hezbollah, sorry, some Iranian Revolutionary Guard leaders, four of them were killed. Again, not a single other person was injured. Israeli intelligence is second to none. So I can only presume, though I'm not an expert on this, that when British troops were battling ISIS in Mosul or Saddam's forces in Basra. They simply didn't have the intelligence that Israel has. Even since October 7th, Israel's high-tech sector, which is kind of unrivaled, have devised artificial intelligence using face recognition technology and all kind of heat sensors to identify armed men in Gaza from above. So Israel, it's not just that the IDF has codes of ethics. They're also able to implement them. And one final point, the Israeli army is a, is a people's army. Very few people have joined it because they enjoy fighting. The average person now risking their life in Gaza does so because he predicts he's uh, protecting his own wife and children, or indeed there are lots of female armed troops in this uh, in this uh, um, battle at the moment too, and they are in. You know, there's a guy I saw on TV who's a dentist, another person who's a high tech worker, another person who's himself a doctor. So these aren't people who want to join an army. And, you know, there's also in, in Judaism, although not perfect, but there's a there's a conscience, a code of ethics, uh, not, not just because they care about Palestinian lives, but because they think it's uh, important for one's own um, moral uh, 
you know, um, fortitude and, and ethical, um, what's the word, um, you know, code of ethics to uh, do everything one can not to harm civilians. Israel's been criticised um, for using bunker buster weaponry, these 2,000 pound bombs, which destroy entire tunnel networks. What's, um, what's your response to that? Well, lots of people in Israel are criticizing the government of Netanyahu for being too weak. If Israel was really using as heavy weaponry as it might, there wouldn't still be so many um, tens and tens of miles of Hamas tunnels three and a half months into the war that are still there. Um, there wouldn't be, you know, three quarters of the Hamas fighting force uh, forces able to basically be uh, taking refuge in these tunnels. So I think that any use of heavier um, bombs by Israel is being done in a very careful and cautious way. If Israel was trigger happy, um, I think more Hamas people would have died and the war would have, you know, been shorter already. What about criticisms that uh, say that uh, Israel is essentially using mass malnutrition, even starvation against uh, Palestinian um, in Gaza? I think, I think as far as I'm aware, this really is propaganda. And you have to remember that the Westerners who are based in Gaza are not politically neutral. These are people who identify with the Palestinian cause, working for organizations like UNRWA, the UN agency, or, or even the Red Cross and others. And I think that if there was genuine malnutrition of the kind we see right now in Yemen and Ethiopia, we would have a lot of film footage. We have heard since the beginning of this conflict on October 7th, almost every day, there were reports in October and November that uh, Gaza was gonna run out of electricity within hours. There are gonna be no hospitals within hours. People are gonna starve to death within hours. They've been saying this for three or four months. They also said this, by the way, in previous bouts of, of conflict in 2009, in 2012, in 2014. I think we can be sure that if someone was really malnourished, we would see film footage of malnourishment. So with all due respect to people like David Cameron, the British Foreign Secretary, who wrote an article that began with this premise that 90% of people in Gaza were malnourished. It was in his first paragraph, an article that appeared in many newspapers, including The Guardian and in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Even Haaretz, which is very left-wing, very anti-Netanyahu, can't find any evidence of this. And, you know, there are lots of Israeli NGOs. If there was real malnourishment, there would be protests within Israel against the Israeli government. I don't know anyone that would want to see a single child starving. Now, having said that, of course, it's very, very difficult conditions for lots of people in Gaza, just like it is for many people in Israel. There is a war on, a war that Hamas started, a war that Israel didn't seek. And because the Palestinian population, uh, sorry, because Hamas have embedded themselves with the Palestinian population, Israel's in a very difficult position. So Israel is supplying food and fuel, even though Hamas steals a lot of it for itself and uses that fuel to continue, even now, firing rockets at Israel. I was in the south of Israel. I'm in Israel at the moment uh, visiting here. I was in the south of Israel three days ago and 50 rockets within an hour 
were fired at one Israeli town, Nekivot, in southern Israel. Even now, Hamas has enough fuel to do this. And again, I think the reports of uh, malnourishment are greatly exaggerated. Tell us about the BBC. How is that uh, perceived in, in Israel and the BBC coverage of this? It's an embarrassment, not just in Israel, okay? The BBC, what can I say? They have, in Israel and else, elsewhere, a really magnificent historic reputation. Even now, classic BBC comedies like Yes Minister or classic nature documentaries of David Attenborough, the reruns are still showing on Israeli TV. Israelis love them just like other people love them, 40 Towers and so on. And yet, BBC News has been taken off the main network, whereas Al Jazeera remains because it is lie after lie after lie. I'm not just taking, talking about small things. This is worthy of Pravda. And I've spoken to people in the BBC, and that doesn't mean everyone in the BBC, but they're in such a groupthink that they just can't see themselves. It's a bit like going to Jeremy Corbyn's inner circle, and I'm sure your American listeners are familiar with Corbyn, until recently the leader of the British Labour Party, who said the person he most admires uh, in foreign policy was Eric Honecker, the former dictator of East Germany, and his friends were Hamas and Hezbollah. That is the mentality of some BBC people. And I think they probably think they're telling the truth, but they absolutely are not. Did the world reaction surprise you? Um, the way in which in Instagram, um, pro-Hamas uh, sentiment outweighs pro-Israel sentiment by something like 10 to 1, uh, the response of uh, uh, the classic example, obviously, with the Ivy League universities in America, Harvard and, and so on. Um, was uh, was this, I, my assumption is, knowing you, uh, Tom, that you'd be sort of shocked but not surprised. Is that uh, a fair assumption? That is a fair assumption. Look, I've been covering for many years the, um, uh, you know, let's call it bias or ignorance of the Middle East. And there are many reasons for it that we might get on to in a bit. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I am startled. I am startled that the presidents of three of the most prestigious universities in the world, live on TV, in Congress, can give, I, I don't know what, answers that a seven-year-old should be ashamed of, and even afterwards not apologize properly. It's, if it had just been one, like you know, the president of Harvard, but not the others, but all three of them. And no doubt others would have done so too, had they been there. And they, they answer questions like robots. I'm also disappointed by the sheer numbers of people demonstrating, particularly in America. I think we've known for a while that some Europeans are very anti-Israel, but we've seen big demonstrations across the United States, from Los Angeles to New York, to Washington DC, to Chicago. Um, we've seen a lot of idiocy. We've seen not chance for peace, that would be one thing. We've seen chance, you know, from the river to the sea, and yet, um, I read a survey the other day that 86% of Ivy League college students said they supported the chant from the river to, to the sea, but less than half of them knew which river and which sea. That would, of course, be the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And a couple of them, 
when they were asked which river and which sea, somebody said the Caribbean Sea and somebody said the Atlantic Ocean. So these are Ivy League students, okay? Another, another interesting thing from the same, um, same these are these are pro-Palestinian activists. So less than a quarter, less than 25% of Ivy League coffee, uh, college students knew who Yasser Arafat was. And more than 10% of them thought he'd been a prime minister of Israel. So, um, you know, I, for one, even at my stupidest as a teenager, I would ne wouldn't dream of going to demonstrate about, I don't know, the Kashmir conflict without educating myself a little bit as to where Kashmir was and what it was all about. So honestly, these are supposedly clever people, and it is just shocking. The level of ignorance, I don't think just about Israel or the Middle East. I mean, you as a historian and all of us should be aghast at the level of ignorance of history and geography of the next generation of Western leaders. And you mentioned there are several reasons for bias. Go go into some of them. What is, apart from obviously straightforward anti-Semitism, on top of that, um, what which has existed in, in every society for thousands of years and is a metasizing um, cancer in the, the human soul, other than that, what are the other reasons for this for this terrible um, um, disparity of uh, of sympathy that we've seen in the Western world? Well, I would say that a lot of it. Well, they, first of all, I say there are two kinds of anti-Semitism. Uh, there's the conscious kind, but I, I regret to say there's a lot of subconscious or unconscious anti-Semitism that I think is motivating people. It's tied in with other things. It's tied in with the idea that Israelis are all white or Jews are all white, whereas, of course, about 50% of the Israeli population are Sephardi or Mizrahi Jews. In other words, their ancestors have been living in Morocco or Iraq or Yemen or indeed Ethiopia. And indeed, 20 to 25 percent of the Israeli population are not Jewish at all. They're Druze and Arabs and, and so on. And yet they, too, are the victims in a way of anti-Semitism. But some of it, I'd say, is just plain anti-Westernism. Israel is, is, you know, a Western country, a democracy. It's a kind of Western self-hate. Um, it's a kind of post-Marxist nihilism by spoilt rich kids at Ivy League universities that really, you know, if it's not uh, exaggerating climate change and then saying we have to ban uh, airplanes and cars and stuff and let's just destroy capitalism, then it's, uh, it's just another front. You know, you know, it's like, say, gender wars. Let's get rid of the whole idea of male and female and so on. Um, it's just another front in a kind of post-Marxist attack on Western civilization. And, you know, Israel is the fool guy. Um, look, at the same time, there is a certain amount of sympathy for Palestinians, and I have sympathy for Palestinians, and Israel is perceived to be the stronger party, the occupying force. Um, so, of course, there is understandable sympathy for the perceived underdog, the Palestinians. But what there should be is people asking questions as to why there isn't a Palestinian state when they've been offered one many times, whose fault is that, and so on, instead of just blaming Israel or America. Do you think the um, uh, Israeli position in in areas like uh, Instagram and uh, and social media would have been strengthened if the GoPro 
footage of 7th of October have been more widely disseminated or was uh, it, is Israel right in trying to only show that really to um, oh I don't know uh, as a parliamentarian I was uh, offered a, a viewing of it the other day but it certainly isn't um, more widely disseminated should it have been? Well, it has been widely disseminated between uh, with uh, Islamists and anti-Semites on Telegram channels and TikTok and so on, and not on Instagram. Should Israel have put out footage? Well, first of all, you know, they want to respect victims. Some of the people shown are rape victims and they want to preserve anonymity. Some of the people have been hacked to death and beheaded. And how do you think their mothers feel in their you know, videos being shown? So I think initially, Israel didn't feel they needed to. They felt, you know, there was overwhelming evidence of the war crimes of Hamas. And they didn't feel that people like Owen Jones of The Guardian or others would be casting doubt on the atrocities of October 7th, because the Palestinians themselves were admitting it and celebrating it. But over the last three and a half months, it's clear that a lot of people have been muddying the waters. And therefore, very late in the day, the New York Times and just a couple of days ago, The Guardian, three and a half months later, have finally run a proper news report on the systematic rape. It wasn't just one or two Hamas guys individually raping people. This was organized mass gang rape that happened on October 7th, ordered by Hamas. Uh, you've mentioned the Red Cross. Um, tell us a bit more about the role of NGOs and the way in which they uh, have been exhibiting huge anti-Israel bias. Well, basically, they're part of a racket. And over the years, those people who have, you know, called them out on it, including the former founder of Human Rights Watch, one of the biggest supposed human rights groups in the world, have criticized Human Rights Watch for taking money from Qatar and, and the past Saudi Arabia and then smearing Israel out of all recognition. I, by the way, I don't want to say for one moment that Israel is perfect. Israel, like every country on earth, gets things wrong and, and you know, should be called out for it by the media and NGOs and UN. But this isn't what's happening. They are holding Israel up to a standard that no other country has ever been held up to, an impossible standard, and adding some lies on top of it. And this is exactly what the many NGOs have done. And, you know, one could say they are themselves biased or, or prejudiced, but I'm afraid to say it's also a bit of a racket. They get more funding if they smear Israel. You know, they don't get lots of nice uh, funding, both from Arab governments and individual people. If, if Oxfam or Save the Children run an appeal for Yemen, they just don't get the same funding as if Save the Children or whoever put an emergency appeal for Gaza. They get 10, maybe 100 times more funding because they are playing on the goodwill of ignorant people in Britain and elsewhere who have been misled by the BBC, who have covered from, you know, from, you know, especially on the World Service, almost 24 hours a day, they are covering Israel, making it seem like Gaza's in rubble when most of Gaza's not in rubble, it's certain areas and so on. And whereas they haven't covered the BBC, I don't know, let's say Yemen or some other very, very bad war, or let's say what's happening in South Sudan, which is a genocide. What's happening right now is Arab militias 
are murdering non-Arab black people. Well, that brings us on, obviously, to the genocide um, hearings by the International Criminal Court at the moment brought by South Africa. Um, tell us your, your thoughts on that. Well, again, it's preposterous. Look, South Africa, first of all, they are allies of Hamas. Since October 7th, they've welcomed senior Hamas leaders from Qatar, have been and hugged, uh, and so from Iran as well, they've hugged uh, some of the leadership at the ANC in South Africa. As I'm no expert on South Africa, but from what I understand, they're in dire economic straits. There are all kinds of internal problems. Um, actually, to answer one of your uh, previous questions and combine it with this, Israel is a useful scapegoat, or rather the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a useful scapegoat, just as Jews were useful scapegoats in the past for, you know, wars and famine and uh, the ills of capitalism. So now the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a useful scapegoat for others. So the South African government can, can divert attention from their own domestic problems and indeed their treatment of African migrants, for example, in South Africa, as well as enormous corruption, by sort of championing the cause, not of the Palestinians, but of Hamas at the uh, International Court of Justice in The Hague. But, you know, this is not genocide. You don't have to be a lawyer to understand this as a genocide. Uh, this is done for a kind of show trial for PR reasons. And it's a kind of um, theatre in a way. Um, and uh, very sadly, by using terms like genocide and apartheid, not only is it not nice for Israel or for Jews, but what about the poor victims of actual apartheid in South Africa. You know, when they say Israel has apartheid, as the South African government has done, well, you know, the Supreme Court justice that just voted against the Israeli government is an Israeli Arab, he was the deciding vote. Or let's say um, the main newsreader on Israel, Arab TV, Israeli TV, who interviewed me the other day, Lucy Arish. She is a Muslim Arab female, secular female Israeli. Or sport, you know, 25 Israeli Arabs have played for the Israeli national football team. Or doctors and pharmacists. So things aren't perfect in Israel. There's a certain amount of discrimination against the Arab minority, as there is discrimination against minorities in, I think, every country on the planet. But to use terms like apartheid and genocide, it makes me sad because how are young people going to understand what real apartheid was or real genocide was, whether in Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge or Rwanda or the Holocaust? Is there any evidence of anti-Hamas sentiment among ordinary Palestinian civilians in Gaza? If there were a free and fair election tomorrow, who would win? It's very hard to know. There are those people who think that Hamas does have widespread support in Gaza. I think it's impossible to know um, because there is no free media, there is no free discourse. I think if you immediately held an election, Hamas may have some support. But if you gave people a chance to freely listen to different opinions and views and have proper access to a wide range of different you know possible uh, possibilities for the future i very much hope that uh 
a great number, hopefully a majority of Palestinians would not support Hamas. But I can't quite say what I want to say, which is if you look at the population in, let's say, Iran, where large segments of the population have risked their lives and in some cases been shot dead in the last year or two, protesting over the hijab and other things in Iran. I don't know is the answer. If I might say one more thing, it's a bit like Russia. Vladimir Putin has such a grip over media, although it's less than Hamas's grip, that were, in fact, Iran, sorry, Russia is holding elections this year. I've no doubt Putin will win. And the sad thing is that he probably is genuinely getting a majority of Russians to vote for him, but they haven't had proper access to information and so on. I don't think we can call it a free and fair election in Russia because they are not in a position and other alternative candidates have not will not be able to run proper campaigns. So it's a bit meaningless, the elections in Russia and indeed in Iran. So it depends what kind of election and what would go before it in Gaza. Do you see this uh, situation getting wider with regard to, uh, obviously with the Houthis it already is, but with regard to Hezbollah in particular, with regard to Syria and so on? Well, Iran is the kind of godfather of all these movements, of the H's, as I call them, Hamas in Gaza, Houthis in Yemen, Hezbollah in um, Lebanon, and some other militia in Iraq and Syria. So it's partly up to Iran. If I was Iran, they, as we know, are moving as fast as they can to try and acquire a nuclear arsenal. If I was Iran, I wouldn't want a wider war until I had, when I say Iran, I mean the regime, until I had a nuclear arsenal, because I wouldn't want to risk it. That would be me if I was the rational person. But I don't know how rational the Iranian regime is. My sense so far is they have not unleashed Hezbollah to the extent they might do, precisely because Hezbollah is a kind of gun breathing down Israel's neck. They want to for later use. The question is whether Israel can live with this. There are those in Israel who say that Israel cannot live with the threat from Hezbollah. We have an October 7th from the north from Hezbollah waiting to happen. Um, right now, Israel is already on a war footing. You have about 20% of the Israeli population, not just from the south near Gaza, but from the north near the Lebanese border, have been evacuated. People don't quite realize 20% of Israelis are under internal, dis internally displaced, internally evacuated at the present time, 28 towns in the north. The Israeli economy is on a war footing. We have a US um, naval carrier warship, I can't remember which one now, Eisenhower, I think it is, or maybe George W. Bush, off the coast of um, you know, the East Mediterranean, off the coast of Israel and Lebanon. And therefore, Israel may not have a better moment than to take the initiative with Hezbollah rather than wait and until Hezbollah takes the initiative with Israel by attacking it. Where have the Abraham Accords been left uh, by the, all of this? Where, where do you think they stand at the moment and, and where are they um, going to go? I think they are solid because I think pretty much every Arab government wants normalization with Israel. 
I'm sure your listeners know this already, but just to remind people, the Abraham Accords happened under the Trump presidency, before the present Biden presidency, and under a Netanyahu government, and Israel had normalization or peace agreements with four Arab countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, to add to the two existing deals Israel had with Jordan and um, with uh, Egypt and many other Arab countries, the most important of which is Saudi Arabia, I'm almost sure want to follow suit because they have concluded some time ago that Israel is a winner, that Israel has all kinds of technological uh, know-how that it wants, not, not in military, but in things like how to grow vegetables in the desert, irrigation, uh, solar energy, uh, water technology, and so on. And I think that MBS, the de facto leader, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, in spite of, let's call it a, a checkered human rights record, nevertheless, on balance, is probably a positive force, a reformer who realized that, realizes that Saudi Arabia's young population cannot be forever overly Islamic, they can't rely on oil, and he wants to modernize uh, Saudi Arabia, a bit like the UAE has already been doing, and he realizes that Israel can be an important partner in this, and Saudi Arabia and Israel already have quiet relations, you know, a little bit under the table. And I know this because I myself have had private talks with people like the Saudi ambassador to London, who is, you know, the first cousin of the crown prince. And he knows exactly that I spend uh, time in Israel. I go there regularly. I know uh, policymakers in Israel, which I suspect is one reason why the Saudis kind of reached out to me in the first place. Uh, you mentioned President Biden. He's um, reportedly asked Netanyahu to shift to, quote, targeted operations, unquote, in Gaza. Um, do First of all, obviously, what do you think about that? And secondly, how do you think pre a, a future President Trump might um, um, deal with the, with the Middle East? I think that President Biden's initial reaction to the October 7th attacks was supportive of Israel. I think he relied on his kind of instincts. You know, he's been a senior person on the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. He's been involved in foreign policy for three or four decades. And I would say, broadly speaking, he's, a, he's friendly towards Israel. And I think his initial reaction uh, to October 7th is one of sympathy. But since then, the kind of State Department foreign policy establishment has regained the upper hand, a bit like they have in London and Paris, too. And I now think he's regurgitating, I call it nonsense. You know, Israel has been targeted. One moment he says Israel needs to be more targeted, more needs to go slower. On the other hand, they say they have to hurry up and beat Hamas. You know, they can't do both. They can't win a war in weeks and, and not be allowed to shoot weapons. Israel has been very targeted. That doesn't mean it's perfect. It would have been impossible, given the situation, given the urban makeup, the way Hamas is firing rockets at Israel from inside schools and UN complexes and offices. 
often what Israel's doing is literally hitting the rocket launching, Hamas rocket launching squad as they have, are firing rockets at hospitals in Israel. You know, the only hospitals that have been hit have been hit by Palestinians. Ashkelon, which is a city south of Tel Aviv, the main hospital has been hit three times by Hamas rockets. So when they are firing rockets at Ashkelon Hospital, Israel will strike back to prevent more rockets being fired by that rocket team, even if that rocket team had positioned themselves in the location of civilians. On other occasions, Israel has not hit back, and Israeli civilians have been killed as a result of Israeli caution. So I think Biden, his comments, and maybe to placate the progressive wing of his own party, maybe to placate um, people like the New York Times opinion writers to give them some, you know, some make him sound like he's on board. But it's hard to know whether that's actually policy or he's just uh, making some off the cuff remarks. Vis-a-vis -vis Trump, President Trump in his previous term of office was was an ally of Israel. He moved the US embassy to Jerusalem. Um, he produced the Trump plan, which I think actually think is a good plan. It wasn't taken seriously, but I suspect that in the end, that Trump plan may be the, you know, may have the, what's the word, um, the seeds of a future um, settlement between Israelis and Palestinians, even a two-state solution within that Trump plan that was never taken very seriously, but it's a very detailed and serious plan he came out with. Anyway, with Trump, uh, he has been supportive of Israel. What concerns me is there's an isolationist wing to the Republican Party, the kind of Tucker Carlson wing, let's call it, and um, I don't know how much influence Trump you know, that some people around Trump at this point have in that it really is America first and he just doesn't want to be very involved with anything that's not, you know, directly on America's borders. So possibly if Trump comes back to power, if a year from now, in fact, it's exactly a year when we're going to have inauguration of the next president, if that is Trump, which it may well be given the opinion polls, we may see a Trump that's similar to his first term that had rather good policies in the Middle East, which pushed back Iran. Iran was more timid after the hard position of Trump that has been under Biden. And he, he helped oversee four peace deals, which is, now if it was a Democrat, if Obama had overseen four peace deals, Obama would have got a second Nobel Peace Prize. No one even suggested giving Trump even one. And you know, it's a magnificent achievement, not easy. And I suspect a, tr a second Trump term would see probably an Israeli-Saudi normalization deal. However, I don't know how an engaged DB, maybe if he picks someone like Mike Pompeo to another senior to come back to cabinet, or someone like Mike Pence, who was in Israel a few days ago. I don't I think you're going to be finding either of those people, frankly, in a future Trump uh, administration, Tom. Well, maybe, I don't know about Pompeo. Anshul Pfeffer, the uh, very anti-Netanyahu journalist, uh, has written in the Times about the Israeli war cabinet essentially being split um, on important issues, including um, the one about uh, hostages for a pause. Tell me, um, is this what you're hearing too? Well, yes, that's been widely reported in the Israeli press. Um, 
anyone who knows Israeli politics or Israeli democracy knows how robust it is. And as Golda Meir, the first female prime minister of Israel said, famously said, um, two Israelis, three opinions, or like everybody wants to be prime minister, she also said. So it will be incredible if there weren't some ruptures and differences of opinion in an Israeli cabinet. It will be a world first. So I've no doubt there are some slight differences. What's being reported is one member of that cabinet who's the least important of the five members of the war cabinet, which is um, General Eisenkot, wants to put more emphasis on hostages. But, you know, he's also a political rival from a different party of, of Prime Minister Netanyahu. So, yes, there may be differences. And you know what? That's OK. The whole point is they should be robust debate. There's no exact right way to conduct this war or any war. It's important that there are discussions and, and disagreements. And Israel being a small country and a talkative people, these things get leaked. So the reports may be true, but I wouldn't... You know, I don't think they'd affect the war. Eisenkot is not the prime minister. And I'd say one of the healthy things about Israel is that it's a democracy and is that they're debates. And in fact, one of the things I think critics of Israel don't spend enough or don't understand enough, and it's the true in conflicts throughout the world, it's vital to understand the difference, the real deep difference between democracies and dictatorships. And now I know it, having spent time as a teenager um, in communist East Europe, you know, crossing Checkpoint Charlie from West Berlin to East Berlin. There's all the difference in the world. And one of the advantages of Israel, what makes it robust, is it's a vigorous, open democracy where people debate things. And even with disasters like October 7th, which is the biggest disaster, I think, in Israeli history, bigger than the Yom Kippur War. Nevertheless, Israel will recover and move on, just like the United States did after 9-11, whereas Hamas and Arab dictatorships suffer from being dictatorships. Um, Pfeffer also uh, implies, though, that uh, Bibi Netanyahu won't survive politically even to the end of uh, this operation against Hamas. What do you think about that? My initial feeling after October 7th was no Israeli or any prime minister could survive such a horrendous, you know, massacre happening on his or her watch, even if he's not responsible for it. But um, the, you know, they've got a 64 seat majority, his coalition and the 120 seat Knesset. I don't see any sign that that's about to crumble. I, on the other hand, don't think that Netanyahu can win another election. But, you know, this government's only one month, uh, one year and one month into a four or five year term. It only came to office uh, less or 12 and a half months ago. I suspect this government will stay in power for at least another two or three years. But I think Netanyahu, who first came to office in his first term as long ago, as long ago as 1996, that's when I was first a correspondent on the Middle East. I remember when he came to power a year after Yitzhak Rabin's assassination and then Shimon Peres, the caretaker prime minister, lost an election to a youthful Netanyahu. So that's 28 years ago, 1996. 
And although Netanyahu has been a good prime minister in many ways, I don't think it's healthy for any society to have a leader stay in power too long. And I think Netanyahu himself knows he can't recover from October 7th. But that's not the same thing that Anshul Pfeffer and others think, that they want to wake up tomorrow morning and find out there's been a coup within the Likud party or the opposition against Netanyahu. I don't think Netanyahu is going to go anywhere in the next months or the next year, personally. Have the West Bank Israelis made the situation uh, worse? The um, the idea that uh, settler violence in the West Bank, which we hear about constantly, is in some way a um, an active reason for um, uh, for all of this violence, or or is that just a uh, adjunct to it? I think it's an adjunct. Look, I personally, um, in theory for two states. I think that every people have the right to self-determination, whether it's the Kurds or Tibetans or Palestinians. What they don't have is the right to use independence to then go on a genocidal rampage against their neighbors. And that is what Israel fears. So I don't think the settlement of the West Bank by Israeli settlers is helpful. I'm not a supporter of it. On the other hand, and some, and some, by all means, only a few settlers are very extremist, even racist, and I, I do not support them. Having said that, some of the media reporting about supposed settler violence is so exaggerated. Most of the supposed violence have been acts of self-defense as Palestinian terror groups have been shooting at settlers. They have literally shot them back sometimes when they've really been injured. There are hardly any cases of random, unprovoked violence against Palestinian civilians by West Bank settlers. So on the one hand, I'm not a supporter of the settlement movement, but that doesn't mean they should be defamed or used as a scapegoat. And we know from Gaza in 2005, Israel left Gaza. Jews have been present in Gaza pretty much for the last 3,000 years, but not since 1995. Ariel Sharon withdrew, he closed down and destroyed 21 Israeli settlements. After 1995, no Jews, whether settlers or civilians or army was left in Gaza. Did that stop Palestinian attacks on Israel? It did not. We've had 18 years of rocket fire and other attacks. So I think it's a kind of, if only it was as simple as saying, yes, let's remove Jewish settlers from the West Bank and peace will break out. If only it was that simple. Unfortunately, it's not. And I don't think scapegoating the settlers or indeed scapegoating Netanyahu, it's wishful thinking. The problems are much deeper than that. And it's not quite so easy to solve this. It's not, look, maybe the settlers make it more complicated, but it's a small, it's a small factor in the overall reasons why the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is continuing. You mentioned two states, or what's sometimes called, a, very often called a two-state solution. Um, do you think all of this has brought the prospect of that closer, uh, or is it um, just as far away as ever? In the immediate term, I don't see any appetite at all for any Israeli leader of left or right, or indeed the Israeli public, to trust a Palestinian state, or at least unless the only way this would come about is 
look, I was a supporter of Palestinian democracy. I now think you can't have it overnight. So what I'd like to see is someone like Mohammed Dahlan, who is a Fatah Palestinian authority, secular uh, leader who is in exile in the in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. He's a Gaza native. If he was made, let's say, governor of Gaza, and with the support of the UAE and the Saudis, rather than what we have now, which Qatar, which is Qatar, which is basically Muslim Brotherhood allied with Iran, backing Hamas. If someone like Dahlan um, could oversee the rebuilding of Gaza, where they would actually turn Gaza into some kind of mini Dubai with a thriving economy, with beautiful hotels on the coast of the Mediterranean, and they wouldn't spend all their money acquiring an arsenal to attack Israel and build a metro that's bigger than the London Underground or the New York subway under Gaza. We're talking about 500 miles of of, uh, of, of deeply built tunnels and hundreds of thousands of rockets they've been building. If you have someone like Dakhlan under the auspices of the UAE run Gaza, and although it seems expensive, we're talking about a population of 2 million. If you look what Qatar, say, spent on the last World Cup building stadiums and a metro, we look at what Saudi is spending on Neon, the new city uh, that they're building near Jeddah, it's not that expensive to build up a kind of mini Dubai or Singapore. Among the Palestinian population are quite a lot of entrepreneurs and high-tech um, engineers and so on. There are people who can build a thriving economy and it, it could have been built since Israel left in 1990, 90, uh, sorry, in 2005. The problem has been Hamas and the problem's been ideology. It's not that there couldn't be a perfectly nice state in Gaza. There could be, you know, Singapore's also a small state. Abu Dhabi and Dubai are small. Bahrain that I visited a few months ago is small. Okay, it's tiny. But you know, if you if you if you have a government that wants to build a, a, a nice state and that state can enjoy good relations with Israel, and in time, because I believe in democracy, I would like to see a transition to democracy in that state. And you bring back someone like Salam Fayyad, who was briefly Palestinian prime minister, who used to work for the World Bank in Washington, DC. And I know privately that he thinks Fatah and Hamas are both repulsive, you know, because the, the Fatah leadership in Ramallah is hardly any better than Hamas. But as long as Anthony Blinken and and and, and, and Macron and, and David Cameron put their faith in uh, Abbas, the Palestinian leader in Ramallah, it's hopeless. He's a Holocaust denier. He's a dictator. He has no vision for the Palestinian people. It's not a question of money. They have got more money per capita than Europe got um, post-war in the Marshall Fund. It's not a question of money. It's a question of getting the right governance there. I think that's a high point. I think that's a, a positive vision that uh, I'm going to end on and ask you uh, the two questions that I always ask all of my guests. Uh, the first one is, what are you reading at the moment? What biography or, uh, or history book are you reading? Well, I just want to say something about history in general for a moment. And look, I read so much news. I don't just read the Western press, I read in translation, the Syrian government news agency, I read the Hamas and Islamic Jihad websites, I read the Iranian government websites. Then unfortunately, I wish I had more time to read history and I urge everyone to read as much history as they can. But right now, I've been reading actually a uh, 
biography of uh, a dear friend of mine and a kind of mentor, the publisher George Weidenfeld, who died four or five years ago. It's a new book uh, called The Maverick by Thomas Harding, mainly about George Weidenfeld, Lord Weidenfeld's publishing career, which was interesting. Weidenfeld published Lolita. He published all kinds of uh, prominent books. Published my first, my, the first 10 books that I wrote, actually. He had, he... There we are. He published... He published Robert. He was a great uh, mentor of mine. Yeah, a wonderful man. The greatest historians, you know, Andrew <laughs> Roberts, Antonia Fraser. But what I want to say is what's not known, and it, this will be left for another later biography, is George Weinerfeld's political influence behind the scenes was second to none. He was, of course, the chief aide to the first president of Israel, Ezra Weizmann, back in 1948. He worked for the BBC in counterintelligence during the Second World War. He was Austrian-born and a fluent, a fluent German speaker. He was a, a Holocaust refugee from Vienna. And uh, but also later on, I know, and it's in the public domain, so I can mention it now, that he was involved in things like um, helping persuade Germany, uh, sell Israel a submarine, which supposedly can be fitted with underwater nuclear missiles. And he was involved with negotiations between Israeli intelligence and German intelligence and Angela Merkel. And I can say this because it is, is in the public domain. I spoke to George about this and other matters while George was alive. He was also involved in Jewish Catholic reconciliation. If you remember the uh, some Carmelite monks opened a, um, a center in Auschwitz in the death camp, which was very upsetting to the Jewish world. And George, who was a personal friend of Pope John Paul II, he negotiated between the World Jewish Congress and John Paul II to have this uh, convent, whatever it was, moved from Auschwitz to another location in Poland. So I think I'm interested in this uh, memoir of George, but I'm waiting for the second one, which will be about politics as well yes i've read that uh, harding book it's a good book but uh, as you say there's a lot more to i remember george was he was a sort of constant guest at the uh, castel gandolfo by the pope you know it was uh, it was his and all of those popes that he had painted the, the paintings of the popes in his uh, wonderful uh, yeah. apartment in uh, in chelsea um embankment uh yes a, a great man and, and and well done that's a that's a good book what if is the next one what is the what's the counterfactual that uh you in uh you enjoy or you sometimes think about well there are many but off the top of my head i'm going to go back to 2009 where there was the so-called green revolution anti-regime in Iran. If you remember, there were mass protests in Iran, and the people were literally calling on Barack Obama, who had just come to power. I think he had already got his Nobel Peace Prize, and they were begging him for Americans, American help, whether it would just be satellite imagery and so on. And there were, there were, I think, millions of people on the streets of Iran. And unlike other countries we mentioned, like Russia and Hamas, I know many Persians, both inside Iran and outside Iran. I have no doubt that probably the majority, but certainly a very, very large number of Iranians want to overthrow the Islamic regime and they would quickly install a pro-Western, hopefully democratic government in Iran, in Persia. And that was a missed historic opportunity. If 
the government had been overthrown in 2009. I don't think we would have, for example, the Houthi attacks now. I'm not sure we would have had October 7th with Hamas. I think Hezbollah would have been greatly weakened and all kinds of other things. would. And the would... nuclear programme would have been, would have been uh, binned. Yeah. The nuclear programme and many other things would have come. And just to add one more thing, one could also go further back, 1979, the Islamic revolution itself. Many people think that President Jimmy Carter, had he backed up the Shah, the Shah wasn't perfect, who was much better than the regime that followed, that Khomeini would not have come to power. And again, uh, we wouldn't have had radical is uh, Shia Islam. We wouldn't have had the counter-reaction of radical Sunni Islam that led to ISIS and horrible other things. And Obama did essentially shun the, Isra uh, the Iranian opposition at that uh, time, didn't he? Why? Completely, Why? I think, just idiocy. Misguided appeasement of the regime, an idea that his own negotiating skills would bring about some grand bargain with the regime. You know, one of the places I like giving interviews for is Persian opposition television stations. They are huge. One of the channels um, that I speak to that's based in London, just on Instagram, they have 13 million followers and many more on Telegram and Twitter and so on. Most of these people are inside Iran. I look in translation at the comments when they're doing reports on Israel, for example. Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, is more popular among Iranians than he probably is in Tel Aviv and certainly than he is in London and New York. And the Iranian people, they despise Obama. Okay, because they regard him as a traitor. I don't think Obama did it on purpose. I think he's naive, he's misled by some of his, some of his advisors, the sort of John Kerry types. Um, that's why I feel a bit sorry for Biden. I think Biden's instincts may be at the right place, but some of his uh, people in the State Department and elsewhere, it's a kind of naivety. I don't think they mean badly. They just think, let's just sit down and speak about it with the Ayatollahs, you know. Tom Gross, uh, thank you so much for your tremendous expertise. Uh, you've given us an awful lot to think about uh, in this Secrets of Statecraft podcast. You're welcome, Andrew. Happy to be on with you. On the next episode of Secrets of Statecraft, I'll be talking to Matt Pottinger, who served in the White House in various senior roles on the National Security Council and was senior director for Asia, where he led the Trump administration's work in the Indo-Pacific region, and in particular, its shift on China policy. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.